The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I want to begin with a couple of prayer requests and an explanation. I want you to remember that Pastor Jason just began a three-month sabbatical. And so please remember to pray for him and for his wife, Kara, and for their children. Pray that God would grant them a season of rest and refreshment and that God would richly bless and renew them in his grace during the sabbatical. Second prayer request is this. Pray for many in the downtown congregation who have the COVID-19 virus, including some of the pastors and their households, including my own household. And that leads to the explanation. I've not tested positive for the virus, but in order to protect you all from any kind of exposure that I might bring to this service, I'm recording this message early in the morning, uh, early Sunday morning, so that uh, I will not be having contact with you, but uh, I am with you in spirit. In fact, I'll go home and I'll watch the service. I'll join you in worship. That'll be kind of weird. I'll join you in worship uh, with Chuck and the rest, uh, whoever's leading the worship today, uh, Renee, and then uh, I'll sit through my own sermon, and then, and then uh, we'll go to the Lord's table together as Bud Burke leads us. So there's the prayer requests and the explanation. Now, we're continuing in our series through the book of Acts. Today our text is Acts 4, verses 32 through 37. Remember the context of Acts. Uh, we're in chapters 1 through 4. After Jesus rose from the dead, he instructed his disciples that the Spirit of God would give them power to bear witness to him, telling people everywhere of the promise of the gospel. And that, that has happened. And Christ ascended before their eyes and before their eyes. And, um, and then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit demonstrably came upon all the believers. And, and now the gospel is being preached primarily by the apostles. And the truth of the gospel is being powerfully validated by miracles done by the hands of the apostles in Jesus' name. And many are coming to believe in Jesus and are being added to the church in Jerusalem, which now numbers over 5,000, including people from all over the known world. So that's where we are in Acts. And now let's read together Acts 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to them as any had need. 
Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now my aim from this text is that God might be pleased to, to strengthen our church in innumerable ways by reminding us of this. This is my summary sentence of what I see in our text. Believing in Jesus creates a community that is one-hearted and sacrificially loving. Believing in Jesus creates a community that is one-hearted and sacrificially loving. And my prayer from this text is that by the Spirit of God and this word, that God would renew our faith and grant new measures of grace, new measures of satisfaction in Jesus to live more and more in accord with the gospel-shaped community described in this text. Toward that end... Let's pray. Almighty God and Father in heaven, I trust that in this text you have a word for us. You have a word for us today, a timely word. When Jason Meyer assigned this text for this Sunday several months ago, it was in your providence that this text would come after a hard family meeting last Sunday night. And so I'm confident that you have a word for us, a a well-timed help. And so I ask you, we ask you, to stand forth from your word that we might see you anew and all that you promised to be for us in Christ more clearly and thereby strengthen our faith that each one of us might in new measures live out the light of your gospel and grace in all our relationships, especially in our relationships with other believers in the church, because that's what this text is about. I pray that you would do more than I ask or imagine for the glory of Christ in this world and for the good of Bethlehem. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, what I see in this text is that believing in Jesus creates a community that is one-hearted and sacrificially loving. And let let me show you why I say it that way by, by this outline. I've broken it up into three parts. Believing in Jesus creates, number one, a believing community. Number two, a one-hearted community. And number three, a sacrificially loving community. So let's take number one. Believing in Jesus creates a believing community. It's right there in verse, two, er, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed. Just stop right there. The full number of those who believed. I almost missed it at first reading. This very important declaration, this main characteristic of this people. They believe in Jesus. Verse 33 adds this. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. They believe in Jesus by the testimony of the apostles about Jesus, about his resurrection. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 2 where the early church is described as devoted to the apostles' teachings? It's the gospel. They believe the apostles' teachings. They believe the apostolic gospel. It's the primary mark of who these people are in the early church. It's what makes a church a church. It's the initial essence of a church. One of the most basic ways to think about the gospel is to remember that the gospel is news. That's what the word gospel means. It's news. And as news, the gospel proclaims what God has done in Christ Jesus for our good. The, the, the angels said this to the shepherds. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you. It's news. That's what the gospel is. It's, it's not a, a, a list of do's and commands. It's not a list of things for us to do. It's a declaration of what God has done. So just remember that as you think about the gospel. It's, it's news about what God has done. And, and of course, there are implications and applications of the gospel and, and the calling of God in our lives to obey him and follow him in faith. But that's not the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is news. The news. So what I'm seeing here is that this people, this gathered people, are people who believe in Jesus by the apostolic gospel, the news. So what do they believe about what God has done in Christ Jesus that marks them? They believe that God sent his son, Jesus, in his grace to seek and to save sinners. They believe that Jesus took on human flesh and lived among us in our world, and that though he was tempted in every way as we are, he did not sin, and thereby was worthy to die for our sin like a sacrificial lamb in order to remove our sins from us, pay for our sins in order to bring us to God, clean, holy, and forgiven. They believe that Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and is sovereignly reigning over all things for the glory of God and for our good as his people. They believe that according to the promise, the Holy Spirit has been given to each one of us within, within our hearts, within our souls, causing us to walk in God's ways, giving us faith to believe him and his promises and love him. And worship him. They believe that they are God's new covenant people. Created by the gift of grace. By the life and 
death and resurrection of Christ. And so the, the church is a believing community. It's a people who believe in Jesus. It's a people who believe the gospel of Jesus. And these people here described share that common belief in Jesus. He is their treasure. So that makes a kind of a community. I'm calling it a believing community. And out of that or in that believing community flow the next two descriptions. One-heartedness and being a sacrificial, sacrificially loving community. Let's look at it. Remember, believing in Jesus creates a community that is one-hearted and sacrificially loving. Let's take the second one now. Number two. This is a community of one heart. Verse 32 again. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Believing in Jesus through the gospel creates a people who are of one heart and soul. There was a hint of this or another description of this back in Acts 2. When the the people, the, the, the church, were described as not only devoted to the apostles' teachings, but also de- described as devoted to the fellowship. They were of one heart and one soul with the fellowship with one another. Well, one of God's purposes in the gospel is to create a new covenant people by the gospel. And he does so not just by saving individually uh, each one of us to, just to keep us isolated and individualized. And No. He saves us, yes, personally, but then as he calls us to himself, he calls us into community with one another. And so the assembly of believers is this unique collection of of people. It's not just you, not just me, not just my friends, not just my family or your friends and your family, not just people who like what I like and hate what I hate or people who like what you like or hate what you hate. The church is not my little tribe or your little tribe. The church is this diverse collection of all who believe in Jesus Christ by the apostolic gospel. People of every age and country and every subgrouping of people that you can imagine. Every intellectual level, every economic level, every level of ability, and every level of disability. The church is made up of all kinds of people. You think, how in the world does this hold together? (laughs) Well, it holds together because they believe in one common ultimate reality. They believe in Jesus Christ. 
They believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that God promises to be in him. And so believing that together, sharing in Christ together and all his promises, creates this spiritual reality of one-heartedness, being of one heart, being of one soul together as partakers of Christ together. I've tasted this, and my hunch is you have too. Have you ever met another Christian for the first time and quickly had this sense of kinship with him or her that was real and tangible? This has happened to me so many times that I've come to expect it when I meet other Christians. It's happened to us. When I think back now, this this has happened to us in meeting believers in, in all these places, just to give you a sense of the geography of where this has happened. It's happened to us as we've met people in Uganda and in Ethiopia, in Africa, and in Prague and in Innsbruck and in the UK, in Europe. In Asia, it's happened in Japan and China and the Philippines. And and it's happened as we've met believers in India. It's happened as we've met believers in the Dominican Republic and in Haiti. Closer to home, we felt this kinship, this one heart and one soul with believers as we've met them in the U.S. From New York to San Diego, from as far north as Thunder Bay, Canada, just outside the U.S., down to Thunder Bay, down to, uh, or excuse me, stay in the north, from Thunder Bay to, to Grand Rapids, all the way down the, uh, to the south in Charlotte, North Carolina, Raleigh, Little Rock, Tampa. And this has happened to us as we've met Christians all through the Midwest, from all around Minnesota, the Dakotas, Wisconsin, Iowa, down the Mississippi to East St. Louis, to Memphis, and all the way down to New Orleans. We've met believers, and in the meeting of these believers had this tangible sense of being of one heart and one soul with them because... We believe in Jesus together. You know what I'm talking about? I think that's a taste of what this text means when it says the believers were of one heart and soul. They had a sense of sharing in the most ultimate things of their lives, namely gospel things, namely Jesus Christ. Think about it. All human beings unite all the time around what they have in common. All sorts of uh, unions form around common origins or common interests or common values or common experiences or common hopes. All sorts of these commonalities unite people into groups and subgroups all the time, every day. 
Think about it. Well, what if a people shared in common the things that are of ultimate importance? What if they shared their ultimate origins? Predestined before the foundation of the world. What if they shared their ultimate values, namely the ultimate treasure of sharing in Christ Jesus himself, valuing him, partaking in him? What if they shared their ultimate interests together, gospel interests, the interests of Christ? What if they shared their ultimate experiences together? The experience of coming to know and know Christ. And what if they shared their ultimate hopes together? The hope of God working in us now. What is pleasing in his sight. and Working out his will and his purposes in us. And the hope of glory being glorified. And living with God forever. What if they shared that, their eternal destiny together? Would that not make for a profound sense of being of one heart and and one soul? It would. It would. You know, if you turn to Ephesians 4, I couldn't help but thinking of what I think is it's a similar dynamic, a knitting together of our community life grounded on the profound sense of oneness that we share in Christ. Paul does that in Ephesians 4. Let me just show it to you briefly. Paul calls the church of Ephesus to a relational love based on the profound ultimate oneness that they already share in Christ. I'll read it. Ephesians 4. I'll begin at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, so far, you see what he's saying? He's saying, brothers and sisters, live in humility and in gentleness and in patience, forbearance, love, and peace. Why? Because God has already given you a spirit of unity in Christ. Maintain it. Preserve it. Don't ruin it. And then he gives a reason why. He gives a ground, a power to live in this relational unity, not not, uh, damaging, but preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in the church. Well, here's the reason. Because, verse 4 says, well, there's one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the 
measure of Christ's gift. So Paul presumes a unity of the Spirit, calls the believers to live in accord with it, to preserve it, and says, look, the reason to live this way with each other is because we have this profound ultimate oneness in Jesus. I think the same is being fleshed out in our text. Because this is a believing community, a community uh, that believes in Jesus, they thereby and therein experience a one-heartedness, a sense of being of one heart and one soul with one another. So, that's point number two. Let's go to the third. Let's think about this third aspect. By belief in Jesus, they are a sacrificially loving community. You see, their, their faith, their belief in Jesus, and their sense of oneness doesn't stay hidden or unexpressed, but it breaks out into radical expression of love for one another. Now, the remainder of the text, really the bulk of the text, is this illustration of the sacrificial love that this believing community has. Well, what's it look like? Look at the middle of verse 32. No, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This need-meeting love is described further in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, a particular note in this church was Barnabas. He was Jewish. He was a Levite who became a Christian. His real name was Joseph, but the nickname the apostles gave him was Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. In other words, so, you know, they, they saw Barnabas and came to know him, and they thought to themselves, look, if encouragement in Christ had a son, had a child, it would be that guy, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And from his nickname, we get a sense of his character. And from a few scattered New Testament references, you know, he's the one that befriends the Apostle Paul after the Apostle Paul becomes a Christian. Remember, Apostle Paul was the persecutor of the church. Who goes to him in love, befriending him? Barnabas. And Barnabas becomes the Apostle Paul's missionary partner. And we have his journeys with, with the Apostle Paul recorded in the book of Acts. He's bold in faith. He's led by the Holy Spirit. And he is full of love. You, you know the kind of person Barnabas is. Because you've experienced Barnabas-like people. And so have I here in this church. God has blessed us with Barnabas-like people who are full of encouragement and full of love, always looking to the interests of others 
and being a means of grace and help. Well, Barnabas is held up to us as an example to follow after. Verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet. This is not natural human behavior. You know, apart from grace, when people sell a piece of property, they don't just give the money away to the poor. To the poor here it is, to the poor in the church. This is not normal human behavior. I mean, normally people, when they would sell some property or even earn money, they keep it for themselves. They spend it on themselves or their family. They add to their retirement or plan a trip or vacation. This is not natural human behavior. This is supernatural. How does this happen? The answer just flows right out of the passage. It happens by a common faith in Jesus and a sense of being of one heart and soul with other believers such that that faith in Jesus, that treasuring of him as being more valuable than Money or possessions or any of the promises that this life gives us overflows with love, need meeting love for other believers in the church, brothers and sisters. I mean, Barnabas looks around and sees, you have a need? I have some property? I'll sell the property and give to your need. There it is. You know, the the best little verse that I point to, that I see in the New Testament that describes the the freedom from the love of money by means of the satisfaction, the, the surpassing treasure that God is for us in Christ is Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Here it is. The, the, the verse says, Keep yourselves free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. You think, well, how do I do that? The reason comes in the next verse. For God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. You see it? So the freedom not to love money the freedom not to cling to our possessions and release them, release our money and possessions in love for other people comes from the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. He will never fail us and forsake us like money will. He is our helper and can help us way more than money can. Therefore, by the surpassing Worth the surpassing treasure that Jesus is. He enables a, a freedom of love and a freedom to, uh, uh, to release our money, or rather even invest our money and our resources and our possessions 
in love for other people, especially other believers. Remember Galatians 6.10. Do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. That's point number three. So let me close by trying to pull it all together. Remember my, my summary statement? Believing in Jesus creates a community that is one-hearted and sacrificially loving. I hope you've seen it here in this text as we've walked through those, through those three points. Now, we're about to go to the Lord's table and Bud Burke is about to lead us. And as we go to the table, we do so intentionally remembering Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me. We're, we're intentionally remembering Jesus and the promises of the gospel that he gives us that are ours by his death. And so let me remind you of the gospel by which we are saved. If you do not believe in Jesus this morning, my prayer is that by the power of these promises and by the work of the Holy Spirit, that God might give you grace to believe in Jesus and say, yes, I want him and I want all these promises that Pastor Kenny is listing that God has for me in Christ Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Save me. If you're there, we would love to talk with you more personally about Jesus. Now, if you do believe in Jesus, let's prepare for the Lord's table by reflecting on the gospel that is ours by the death of Christ. Remember, you were ransomed by God. God, by the promise of the gospel, ransomed you from the enslaving power and damning consequences of sin by the death of Christ. 1 Peter 1.18 You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were ransomed. You were also redeemed. God, out of the lavishness of his mercy, has bought you for himself by the death of Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1, 7. You were ransomed, you were redeemed, but not only that, You've been adopted. God, by the promise of the gospel, has become your father. Where once you were children of wrath, belonging to the kingdom of darkness, now in Christ Jesus, quoting from Galatians 3.26, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
That is, we, both men and women, are sons of God through faith. What does that mean? It's not sexism. What Paul means is, in Christ Jesus, the only Son of God is all the inheritance of God. And when we have been united with Christ by the gospel in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, all the inheritance of the only Son of God goes to Jesus. And in going to Jesus, the only Son, it comes to all of us, men and women, boys and girls who are in Christ. We are all in Christ, only sons of God. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's why the Apostle John says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So you were ransomed, you were redeemed, you were adopted, and you have been given eternal life. God, by the promise of God, has given you life everlasting. First by his, his Holy Spirit and second by resurrection from the dead on the day when we get new bodies and we are glorified and we see Jesus as he is face to face. And then we, we will live with God forever and ever in the new heavens, in the new earth. He will be our God and we will be his people and we will live together with, with him at the center of our life and our community in the new heavens. Forever. Forever. So God has given, given you these graces. He's ransomed you. He's redeemed you. He's adopted. He's given you life eternal. And we have been given union. By the promise of the gospel, God has united us with Christ inseparably. Christ to his people. We are his bride, and he has so knitted us to himself that nothing and no one can separate us from him. All his blessings are ours, the, the promise I love is, is the description of this in, in Hosea 19 and 20. In righteousness and injustice, God says, in steadfast love and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. We have been united to Christ, married to Christ forever in this inseparable union and all the blessings of Christ are ours forever in him. So all this and more belongs to us in Christ. We are profoundly united in Christ as our ultimate treasure and we share these ultimate graces, this ultimate reality, this ultimate life together. Ultimate origins, ultimate interests, ultimate values, ultimate cause. And our ultimate hope of being with him forever. God is our treasure in Christ. And this treasure is our ultimate. In and only in this shared grace 
of the riches of the gospel in which we share Christ as our ultimate treasure will we find this deep and profound sense of being of one heart and soul and find the power to love one another sacrificially through all the ups and downs of family church life, through the hard times, through the times when straight talk is needed and and labors of listening to one another are needed and compromises are needed, Uh, forbearance is needed, forgiveness, all the grist of church life will hold together. by this reality. Namely, believing in Jesus Christ creates a one-hearted and sacrificially loving community. It is true here in this text. May God make it more and more and more true in our church. We've tasted this. God, give us more, we pray. Let's pray together. Lord, make it so. In Jesus' name, make it so. We need a fresh outpouring of your mercy and grace on our church. So deepen our faith. Ground us in these ultimate realities, namely the ultimate reality. The fact that we have come to know Christ Jesus, our treasure through faith. So in him, do it all. Flesh it out, I pray, for your glory in this world and our joy in this church, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.